0: I'm Katie Prejean-McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I saw this thing online once, how 2022 of me to say that. I saw this meme, I watched this TikTok, I listened to this podcast. I saw this thing one time online, I think it was probably on Twitter, that described grief like a wave. And waves that come crashing, sometimes quite rapidly, again and again and again. And then sometimes waves that are, are quite small. You certainly couldn't ride them as if you were on a surfboard. Sometimes waves that they roll in and then they pull back, back and forth, back and forth, kind of almost a familiar feeling of you know, the waves that are crashing upon the beach. But that grief is not like a high tide or a low tide where we could pretty much bank on the times that it's going to happen but instead is, is just like this rocky sea where sometimes the waves are, are quite intense and crashing quickly and, and sometimes they're very calm. And in describing of grief as a wave, you know, it got me thinking about the fact that we, we so often, and I've been guilty of this and maybe you too. So often we try to talk about grief, talk about pain, talk about a wound from some sort of a loss in such a way that we we want to arrive at a perspective of okay and now that grief has has ended now that wound has been healed now i can just move on and talk about it as if it's in the past and and i think if there's anything that we know about the experience of grief anything that we understand about loss anything that we understand about a wound that comes in such a way that we enter into this the waves come crashing sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly what we've arrived at is is an understanding that the human person is pretty much always going to have to be dealing with it. I I realized that was almost two minutes of me kind of building up to a, you know what, we can use all these analogies, but none of them actually really truly capture the experience. But that's ultimately the point. One of the things that I found challenging about this particular series on healing was we're going to sit down and, and talk to people about their stories. We're going to sit down and ask them to tell us about how they've arrived at a place of healing but there's going to be this massive caveat in every conversation, and that is that this process of healing is never finished, that this process of healing is ongoing, that this process of healing is one that we're constantly going through, that in the journey of healing, what we're ultimately arriving at is a place of, of peace to where I can stand as the wave comes crashing at me and not drown where I can stand and the wave crashes against me and I, I welcome it almost. I accept it. I realize that it's going to happen and so I'm just going to embrace it and ride through it in this particular moment. That's truly what healing, especially through grief, looks like. That we don't get swept away by it, but that we can stand in it. I I would say stand against it, but that almost makes it seem like I'm trying to fight against the grief. And if there's one thing I've learned in the conversations that you'll hear this week, it's that we don't fight against grief. We lean into grief. We we don't resist the grief. We feel the grief. Healing is allowing ourselves to feel it. And healing is allowing ourselves to look through all of it, almost with a, a fine tooth comb in some senses and come to a deeper understanding of it. Today's conversation with my good friend Letitia Adams starts to unpack a little bit of what it looks like to stand in the waves of grief. Letitia lost her son, and in the losing of her son, has been sharing quite publicly for years about what that healing process and healing journey looks like. And she'll tell you, just like she told me and has told me many times and has shared on her social media, that that looks different day to day that we can talk about it today and this conversation will air, but that three months from now she might have different answers to these questions or five months ago, she might've had different answers to these questions and that through all of it, the healing process is is learning to walk through that and not resist it. This is one of the things in healing that I, I think we often do. We try to resist the process itself. And so today's conversation shows one woman's journey with that And I think in a very beautiful way invites you and I into embracing the grief that sometimes we've resisted and the healing that we've sometimes run from and instead walk along that journey just simply as ourselves and realize that the Lord can be present in all of that. This is all part of our larger conversation on healing from the good folks at Ave Maria Press. You can find everything in our Ave Explorers Healing Series over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. The link is down in the show notes. We'd love it if you'd follow the show, give it a rating and a review. But for now, we'd love it if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation with Letitia Adams about grief and healing. Letitia Adams, welcome back to Ave Explores. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, we are friends, we talk frequently, but it's been a while since we've had you on the show. So introduce yourself to folks. Tell us real quick about your new book coming out with Ave.
1: Um, okay, so that's kind of a lot, but <laughs> we'll try to go We got fast time, we got time. <laughs> right, right. I'm Leticia Ochoa Adams. I am a convert to Catholicism. I converted in, let's see, 2010. Man, that feels so long ago. <laughs> a lifetime um, ago. Yeah, exactly. And the only reason why I began RCIA, which is the Right of Christian Initiation for Adults, is so that my living boyfriend would marry me. <laughs> Eh. (laughs) jokes on me, I ended up becoming actually Catholic. (laughs) God's funny. Yeah, I raised four children. I come from a long line of generational poverty and trauma. I was sexually abused as a child. And then I became promiscuous. I got pregnant when I was 16 with my oldest son, Anthony, and had three more kids. Yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Like, Fast forward a lot of stuff. And then I became Catholic in 2010, Easter Vigil 2010. All three of my kids were baptized and I received all of the sacraments, except I was already baptized, but Mm -hmm. all the rest of my sacraments. Got married in the church that October, had my stepchildren enter, get the rest of their sacraments the following May. So we were a blended family of seven that all came into the church within a year. Mm. Was crazy times. (laughs) Um, So my new book, yeah, exactly. So my new book is called "Our Lady of Hot Messes" because that's my life. It's just Uh so much stuff. Like, I mean, you're my friend. You know, like the things that happen to me at this point, I just laugh. I kind of feel like Mr. Magoo living through life, and like all these crises Uh are happening around me, and I'm just like going, Mm -hmm. you know, forward. And it it's gotten worse. (laughs) since I became Catholic. It's so funny. (laughs) But the amazing things are so epically amazing. Like I couldn't be an atheist if I wanted to because God just does these crazy outlandish things for me. So that's my life. So I wrote a book kind of about that. Mm -hmm. The practicality of living life while being in a relationship with God is so... It's, it's not anything that I necessarily see in Catholic content on Instagram or Facebook, where it's like, this is the practical life and the spiritual life. Like I see, I see people kind of sometimes get into this habit of splitting those things between their private life with their friends and family, and then the public life with followers or readers or whatever. And so I kind of wanted to blend the two because I am too lazy to try to separate them <laughs> and I can't keep up and my wife is nuts. So I blended the two and this book came out from that, which mm-hmm. is, you know, yes, you love God and you trust God with your family to protect your family and to do good things for your family, but you also need to get life insurance mm-hmm. for everybody mm-hmm. and Stuff like that. You know, like, how do you get your kids to clean their room? Like, you can't pray your rosary for that. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you could. Only If only it was that easy, everyone would be Catholic.
0: (laughs) My almost five-year-old, well, by the time this airs, five-year-old busted into the office a few minutes ago. I just wrapped up a podcast interview and she was like, mommy, can I sit in here? And it's like, no, you may not, because you will start jumping into the conversation. You're also not old enough to hear this conversation So I just, I placated her by handing her an old microphone. And it was like, did I just hand you the Holy grail? She thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And it's like, I, that my faith could not have taught me that that was the way to get her out of the office. Some people would say my faith should teach me. I shouldn't be getting her out of the office because I shouldn't have an office because I should be a good Catholic woman and just stay home. That's a different podcast (laughs) for a different day. You said something, you know, I made, I made a note of it that, you know, you've experienced a lot of trauma. You've experienced a lot of hurt and a pain and, You're one of my favorite people to talk to about this because you talk about it as if like it has happened. There is no pussyfooting around. You're an open book about talking about what has occurred. And out of that, a lot of the podcast this season has been about woundedness. And from those wounds, we often begin to perceive reality from a place of wounds. And I love how you approach life. And you talk about this quite beautifully on social media and in your writing and on interviews, the wounds have not shaped your reality so much as you're aware that the wounds are part of reality. And so you can kind of approach them from this other perspective of, I know that's real. And so here's how I'm going to live as a result of it. Not, I'm just going to sit in the hurt and let that dictate everything. But I'm going to, I'm going to arrive at it. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I'm arrive at it from a place of, I know that that has happened. And so here's how I'm going to live as a result of it. That wasn't an overnight thing though, right? Like your healing journey is still very much ongoing. Can, can you share with us a little bit of kind of the wake up call moment of, oh, my gosh, these things have happened and I need to do something about that in my life?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I used to, I mean, as far back as I can remember, I lived from a place of pain. Like everything came from my pain, Mm. whether it was that I was getting bullied in school because I didn't have a dad. I grew up in a small rural Texas town where I was the only child in my school that did not have a dad. I I didn't have a dad at all. It's not just that my parents were divorced, It's that I never met my dad. I Mm. didn't know my dad. My dad didn't live in town. So like in the first grade, I was tired of being made fun of. It was some dad thing at school, like, I don't know, dad lunch or whatever it was. And I came up with the story that Kenny Rogers was my dad. And that's why he couldn't be there because he's Kenny Rogers. Why would he come to Kennedy, Texas? You know, even that story. So my storytelling, even as a young child, came from this place of pain Mm -hmm. and loss, you know, and that's. First grade, and then when I discovered boys, and it became this like if I could just get Donnie Wahlberg to like come to town, and pull up in a limo and say he loved me, then all these kids in my in my town would leave me alone, Mm -hmm. right? They would see how special I am, and I think that that's so much of what happens as kids. Like we're in our own little world, and it's not it doesn't make sense. So we have to make sense of it, like, Mm -hmm. and so we start sh- storytelling. And a lot of times as parents, we see those storytellings as like them lying instead of seeing like it's coming from something. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make sense of something. Yeah, they're filling a hole. They're filling a hole, right, exactly. And so needless to say, Darling Wahlberg never showed up in the town. <laughs> but in the sixth grade, my husband, Stacey Adams, came as a new kid on at school, and it was crazy. And he looks like Donny Wahlberg, and so he fit perfectly in my little story. And I chased him around, and I wrote SNL forever on his school books because that's like back when we had paper school cover cover covers on our books. And you know, I fell in love with him. And looking back now, it's like I fell in love with him as a means to an end. An idea, Even at yeah. twelve, that's what that was, right? But for some reason, he stuck. He stuck. Mm -hmm. So after 17 years of having moved away from our small town, both of us moved away. We both got married. We had kids. We got divorced. He was in Iraq. I was in Austin and we got back together. Mm -hmm. And when we got back together and moved into the suburbs, it was like, this is perfect. My husband owns his own company. It's the American dream. My husband owns his own company. We're going to mass on easter and christmas which is what you do as an american and then (laughs) and then we lived in the suburbs and we were together and it's my childhood sweetheart this fairy tale love story Mm -hmm. everything well it wasn't fine we'd get into these big huge fights he'd leave i'd cry we'd get drunk you know all this stuff so then i figured he went to afghanistan as a contractor so i figured I'll become Catholic, we'll get married, everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. So this goalpost kept moving on, if I do these things, everything will be fine. And we did get married in the church. I did become Catholic. I had this whirlwind conversion where God just literally swooped me off my feet. Mm -hmm. And I started making money talking about my conversion. I started writing about it and it was this great thing. And I would write these long opinion pieces on how evil Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood was and, you know, all this stuff. And I was like gaining all this infamy, I guess you could call mm-hmm. it. And Stacey and I started fighting. Our marriage started falling apart again. Mm-hmm. There was some addiction issues, some codependency issues. And my friend who was going back to school in her 40s to become a therapist, sat me down in her study and handed me a book on codependency mm-hmm. called Codependency No More. And she told me, you know, she talked to me not through a faith lens, but through a psychology mm-hmm. a therapist lens about what is codependency. Mm-hmm. And so I read this book and I hated every word of it, but it was so true. <laughs> it was, right. it yeah. was so true. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't just see myself. I saw my mother. I saw my grandmother. I saw my aunts and how they interacted in relationships, you know, all this and that. So I started kind of changing all that. And then I started praying for God to give me an exorcist, Mm -hmm. a therapist and an accountant. Like (laughs) These are the three things that I need. And he sent me the best therapist ever. I began therapy with my husband, trying to get my therapist to fix my husband because he was obviously the problem. And my therapist said, why don't we do individual therapy? And what if he isn't the problem? What if you have your own problems? And Mm -hmm. I was like, that's crazy and ludicrous and that's when I started the road down to through therapy and I put my kids in therapy but by then Anthony was already 19 a father living on his own he did not believe that he needed therapy Mm -hmm. Anthony had a very a very positive vibe mentality like Mm -hmm. if I just think positively if I go to the gym if I wash my car if I work hard if I pull he had a very pull yourself up by your Mm -hmm. bootstraps mentality, and he believed it wholeheartedly, you know, and in March of 2017, he died by suicide in my house. And it was shocking to everybody Mm -hmm. because Anthony was such a responsible, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Mm -hmm. don't let your family down type of person that suicide just never seemed like something Mm -hmm. Anthony would do. In hindsight, looking at his writings, reading his post on Facebook, remembering conversations I had with him, reading through texts, suicide was always there. Mm -hmm. It was, his depression was always there. His anxiety was always there. But what I chose to see was the push through mentality. And what he chose to show was the push through Mm -hmm. mentality. So when he died by suicide is when I kind of like had to stop and think like, what could I have done differently And of course, at the beginning, it was putting the responsibility of his suicide on myself. Mm -hmm. And I worked through that with my therapist where, you know, I can take responsibility for the choices that I made that negatively impacted my children without taking responsibility for Anthony's suicide. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of things that contributed to that, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's the moment where I was like, what needs to change yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how do I change it and how do I acknowledge the truth while also not allowing it to dictate my life.
0: Mm-hmm. I love what you said about, you know, throughout the course of your life, there's an awareness, I think, inside of everybody that like something needs to be different. Something needs to change. I need to fix this or I need to heal this. And so much of our, our lives I think are spent slapping on off-brand band-aids which, like, there's nothing worse than the CVS-branded Band-Aid that just, like, within 24 hours the adhesive is gone or it, like, it leaves, like, that weird black ring around the wound. And you look down and, like, the wound has maybe started to kind of scab over, but that Band-Aid needs to be on it for a little while longer, but the Band-Aid's lost its adhesive. So you, you find another <laughs> Band-Aid. But then all you're doing is placating and attempting to fix a problem that needs it needs a brand name Band-Aid or it needs like stitches or, you know, it, it needs yeah. air. And so like we, we do so much to self-medicate and it, it sounds like at the, at the deepest part, my job is not to identify people's woundedness, but you have often spoke about how like that wound really started with a sense of I'm not accepted by the people around me. I don't have a dad, so I'm not loved. And so we act out of our woundedness. And then there comes that moment of everything's falling apart. I have to change. I need to find that healing. Anthony dies and you've, you've told a story before about meatloaf and how his dish was left in the sink that I like still think about to this day about like, just like the finality of something. But then also he was, I was just talking to him a moment ago we're recording on his birthday, which I think was very providential that, that the Lord scheduled it in this kind of way, or you scheduled it this kind of way, but the Lord has his hand <laughs> in it. This is part of our, our series on healing. And we're doing this conversation to fit into our grief week Because I think a lot of times like we can look at all these wounds from our history and then there comes a moment of everything shifts and now I'm grieving in my woundedness and it, it makes the wound bigger or the grief can be the trigger to leading to healing. Which was it for you? Like what happened in those immediate moments of, oh my gosh, my world has fallen apart even more so.
1: Yeah. And that's just the thing. Like, The police were in the garage with Anthony's body and I'm, you know, people are in your house. Like if there's strangers in your house, you think I need to Mm -hmm. pick up and I, I need to organize things, uh, you know, and then I have the dogs in these huge dog crates because strangers are in the house. My Mm -hmm. dogs have a tendency of not being friendly to strangers Mm -hmm. and, and it's cops. So it's like, I don't want my dogs to bite police officers. So I'm like tidying up. And I go into the kitchen and the dishes are like in the sink and I'm like, oh my God, I need to like start putting these in the dishwasher. And I go to grab the one plate and like there's still a piece of meatloaf and Anthony's fork in the plate. And it's just so astronomically insane to me that his meatloaf and fork are still in the sink and he's dead in the garage. Like how does that even work, you know? And it's like this, I did feel a shift and at that moment, I felt like I can lose my mind right now and go hysterical and get drugged and put into an ambulance and I can't make decisions for my child or I can do what I've been preaching and breathe and put myself in God's hands. And it's not like this like mm-hmm. flowery vision of like, Oh, I'm in Jesus's arms now. He's going to take care of me. No, it's more like a. It's a collapse. I'm either going to. Yeah, you're either going to show up and help Mm -hmm. me or I'm going to lose my mind. Like Mm -hmm. those are the two options. Right. And then from there, that became. There was only two options. There is the option of walking away. and, And it's been very hard. I mean not necessarily the church showed up for me like nothing I could ever have imagined when Mm -hmm. Anthony died. People from all over the world sent donations for his funeral. I mean, all kinds of stuff, prayers, prayer cards, I mean, everything you could imagine. Mm -hmm. And then 2020 happened. And I saw that same church, that same church just turn in on itself Mm -hmm. and on each other. And that was so scandalizing for me when I read things that some people post or write about Pope Francis it scandalizes me to my core mm-hmm. you know because I've always had this ability to fool myself mm-hmm. into thinking something is real that isn't mm-hmm. and so I I think like if if this is real why are people who are good Catholics in every sense of the word, Mm -hmm. writing these things about Pope Francis, Mm -hmm. you know? And so again, that scandalizes me. So the option always is, do I stay or do I leave, right? Mm -hmm. And, but then what happens was, so I moved out into uh, rural Texas. (laughs) I, I live in a cow pasture in an RV, we live off grid. I planted a garden in the spring. And before the garden, before anything, I'm I'm sitting in the front yard and I'm watching the sunset. And I'm just thinking, like, God has to be real because that sunset is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And then it just, like, came to me, like, Genesis. He comes to commune with them in the cool of the evening. Mm-hmm. And it makes so much sense when you're living in a cow pasture in Texas summers, where it's mm-hmm. like, it's so hot during the day and you can't do anything, but sit still and wait for it to be over. And then you step outside at a certain point in the evening and mm-hmm. it, the cool breeze comes through, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, the only thing I can do is hope. Mm-hmm. That, I will see my son again. Mm -hmm. And the only way logically for that to happen is for God to be who he says he is. Mm -hmm. And for me to trust in that Mm -hmm. and trust him with my son's soul. Mm -hmm. And you cannot, you have kids. Like you can't trust your kids to someone you don't love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it all fit. And that's where, you know, yes, I still have issues with, The church, like who doesn't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But at the end of the day, he is who he says he is, and I have to hope Mm -hmm. and trust in that in a real way. Yeah. For not just Anthony, but for my other kids, for myself, Mm -hmm. for my husband.
0: I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Letitia. I wanted to take a quick moment and tell you about today's episode sponsor, our good friends at Sock Religious. You know it all started with a conversation about donut socks sock religious's co-founder scott williams jokes with a friend you know i can wear socks for national donut day how cool would it be if i could wear saint socks on a saint's feast day five years later sock religious is a rapidly growing company that makes not only socks but t-shirts and stickers onesies coffee mugs Their flagship product, of course, is the socks. They come in a variety of sizes and styles. I kid you not, I am wearing a pair of them right now for St. Clair of Assisi, one of their newest offerings. From one size fits most to kids' sizes, extra large for those with extra large feet, the no-show styles. There is literally a sock for anyone and can fit in anybody's sock drawer. If you like good Catholic humor, if you like puns, you can check out their t-shirts. They have a lot of saints and funny, punny phrases. I really love uh, all the different ones that that have like a silhouette, a, a, an image of the saint, and then kind of a, a nice, fun little phrase. They're all really great. Sacrilegious makes some of the best stuff that you can find in the Catholic world. They're perfect for birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, First Communions, Confirmation, Christmas. We get them for the priest's. Uh, in our life every year for Christmas, hop on over to com and check it all out. We have a link for you in the show notes as well as a discount code. We're so happy that they're sponsoring today's episode. All right, back to the conversation with Letitia Adams. You know, Dr. Bob Shute said something at the very beginning of our season about how wounds begin to affect our reality. And then we can't address the wounds. We can't find a place of healing until we've recognized that there's stability. And for, I think a lot of people, that stability can be found in the church. But then sometimes you find the stability in the life of the church and the sacramental life in the community. And then all of a sudden that stability starts to wane and starts to crumble. And it's very easy to go back to this. Oh, no, no, no. Those wounds are much more comforting to hold on to because I know what they feel like. And I don't yeah. know how to deal with the fact that like this person is saying something that's wrong or this person is saying something that's really cruel to an entire segment of the church, to, to entire members of the body of Christ. And and I, I, it sounds like in your journey of healing, which is an ongoing thing for everybody, but you've kind of come to a place of God is bigger than the lack of stability that sometimes I experience because of people or God is so yeah. much bigger than the wound that I've held on to and that has caused this, that, and the other, but those those things have scarred over. can you talk to us about how the sacraments have played a part in that? You know we're we're asking like everyone like where the the people of the church, which is the body of Christ, but let's think bigger, like those sacramental moments are truly where we experience that grace. can you Can you share with us about that?
1: yeah, and this is the thing like i you know, the sacraments are healing. And why are they healing? Because they bring us into an encounter with Christ. Not uh, not just like a, oh, you know, Jesus is here. But like a, an encounter with Christ. In the Eucharist, we, we take Christ inside of us. In confession, we're talking to Jesus and he is telling us we're good and loved. He's seen us. We're all created to be known, loved, and seen. And sometimes... All the time. Every human in your life is going to fail at those things. Mm-hmm. And those cause wounds, right? But God never fails to see us, love us, and know us. And in confession, That's what I tell my granddaughter. A confession isn't about going in there and telling God how you're bad. Mm -hmm. Confession is going in there and telling him how you harmed someone else or harmed yourself or whatever. And him telling you, I love you. Mm -hmm. I see you and I know you and you're wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what confession is. And then the Eucharist, the same, you know. So all of the sacraments are the stability. And to me, I feel... I think that when I first converted, I don't think I know when I first converted, it, sacraments were boxes to check. Did I go to mass this week? Did I go to confession this month? Oh, they're having a healing mass. Let's go get anointed. Like, you know, all these things, they were just boxes to be checked. Mm-hmm. And now I see them as ways to encounter Christ in my everyday life, mm-hmm. you know? And yes, the people all around, maybe even the person that you go to confession to, can do things to hurt you. But God, like you said, is bigger than that and he's given us these tools. They're like meetings. You know, if you have a if you're married, you you sometimes you and your husband go out to date night or sometimes y'all go to lunch or sometimes you take the kids and you go on a fun week- weekend vacation, you know? You're in a relationship with God. These sacraments are those things. Mm-hmm. They're these little meetings. These you know, let's have a conversation about our finances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, (laughs) there are these little meetings you have with someone you're in a relationship with. They're not boxes to be checked. Mm -hmm. They're not measurements of goodness. They Mm -hmm. are, you know, parts of this relationship you have with God. Mm -hmm. And for me, those sacraments have helped keep me tethered Mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. But in the moments, and this is the thing that I try to get across to people in the moments where I can't go to mass for whatever reason, I'm, I'm grieving, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm angry, whatever the, whatever the case might be. There is also something to be said about the fact that we are walking sacraments through our baptism mm-hmm. and that we can, God meets us where we are and he will always Lead me back to mass. Mm -hmm, (laughs) He will mm -hmm. always lead me back to confession. Like it's not like he's like, oh yeah, just just visit me in the sunset and we'll Mm -hmm. live our rest of our (laughs) lives like this. No, he's always like, okay, now let's get back to mass. Let's let's get back to that's beautiful. These family meetings type things, you know, because those are part of our relationship with him, and they're definitely part of my relationship with him myself. And and I've learned also that like for me being such an advocate for justice, that mass isn't a rally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is worshiping God. Mm -hmm. It is what God is owed through being good. Mm -hmm. We owe him that time of worship and Mm -hmm. adoration. Mm -hmm. It isn't I want this priest to say mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. about this issue that I feel is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, that? Yeah. It's otherworldly. I mean, it is literally something that does not make sense according to worldly terms that we, in our broken language, have tried to explain. I love how you're saying that, like, the sacramental realities become bigger than the realities of people who sometimes fail us, or certainly the wounds that were often inflicted by people. And that the healing that is sought in the practicals of therapy, of reading about codependency, of recognizing like, this is where my woundedness came from. And so this is the pain that I'm feeling. So this is the healing that I need to seek. In the immediate moments of great grief, people hit that fight or flight response. People hit that, I can't believe this is real. So I'm just going to pretend like it's not, or it is so real that I can't see anything beyond this moment. And I think... There, there are collective moments of great grief and tragedy. I, I think back to the awful shooting in Uvalde where, you know, I I've never done this before on my radio show, but I just opened up the phone lines. It was like, call and tell me what you're thinking about what you're feeling in this moment. And, and I was like, you're not allowed to talk about gun violence. You're not allowed to talk about politics. Like we are just like grieving these children and, and these families. Yeah. And I, the next day Tommy was like, you're going to talk about it again. And I was like, I don't think I can emotionally handle talking about it another day on the radio. I, I want to talk about it in my family. I want to certainly talk about like, yeah, those hard realities. And then I feel like that's the world collectively. Like I almost feel like I copped out, like we should have done a whole week on just this collective moment of grief. And I, I think a lot of people do that. We, we experience something collectively. We experience something personally and it's, I'm not going to let myself grieve because that's too hard. Or I don't know how to let other people grieve or I don't know how to help. Um, and you've been in the trenches of that. Like you've been helping families and you've all day, you've been at the sink with your, your son dead in the garage what do people, if you could like name one or two things that can help begin healing in a moment of intense grief, not because we're just trying to wipe it away, but because like we have to confront it, but we need things to be able to, confront. I'm not going to walk into a burning house without some sort of water source. Like I'm not going to confront my grief without these
1: things. So what are those things? I think first and foremost, and this is something that I've been seeing. I think that we need healed leaders Mm, (laughs) that's good we lack it so we have to first it's the same thing as an airplane that's going down you first have to put the oxygen mask on yourself and if you haven't dealt with your trauma and you haven't dealt with your hard feelings or inability to cope with conflict, then the best thing you can do for people who are in a horrible situation, like the people in Ubalde or a friend whose son has died by suicide is to hand them food and gift cards, not advice, not words of wisdom. Practicals. Practicals, right? Because you're going to cause more harm than good. And then again, like find the leaders that are healed, find the leaders that are outside of the opinion. Yeah. You know, I have to have an opinion because true leaders don't know all the answers. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of Uvalde, like I watched the director of DPS testifying in front of the state committee, and they were asking him these questions, trying to get him to say these whatever it was that they wanted him to say, and I just heard him never falling into a pro or anti camp. He was just giving the facts, and he was saying. And someone was like, do you think that it's 18 is too young to own these guns? And he was like, "Well, I I really don't have the expertise to speak on that because at 18, I was in the military. Mm -hmm. So do I think it's unsafe without training? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the expertise to talk about policy. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, you know, regardless of what he was saying, whether or not I agree with him, that's not the point. But like, You have this way of not falling into one Mm -hmm. camp or another. He saw the whole picture. And I think that we need that in the church too, that sees the whole picture. Like, yes, you don't have to agree with everything Pope Francis says, Mm -hmm. but he is still our Pope. And Mm -hmm. we have to have a certain level of respect for the fact that this is what God allowed at this time, Mm -hmm. right? Same with bishops, same with everything. And like, what can we do in these moments of walking with someone through their suffering Mm -hmm. and knowing what I can give? right yeah. that's so that's the second thing knowing what you can give can i give money they need money can i give advice because it, it's worthwhile advice yeah. <laughs> then i can do that and and also i think like we really need to learn to not give advice unless it's asked for yeah. <laughs> like if there's not a question mark yeah 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 i i know when i had covid in june
0: <laughs> the, the texts were never, how are you feeling? The texts were, this is what I did to get over it. And it's like, guys, I got a, I got a physician for that. Like, I was just grateful <laughs> that you texted, but I kind of just wanted like, I hope you're feeling better or how are you feeling? Not you yeah. need this medication or you need this breathing treatment. It's like, I got Paxlovid, we're good. Like there is a medicine that somebody with authority gave me. Yeah, and I, I think a lot yeah. of times we enter into a moment where somebody's grieving and like, we don't know what to say. And we've conditioned ourselves to believe that, just being present isn't enough. And it's like, no, you can be present with the gift card. You can be present with just like sitting there and holding their hand. You can be present by saying like, does your house need to be cleaned? Okay. I'm just going to go clean it. It's like a a new baby's born. The mom sometimes just like wants to go take a shower, not like sit there and recount the birth story 10 different times. And grief is such a cloud that covers us that we either, it's like we don't know how to sit in it. We just want it to move away. But then all of a sudden it comes back and everybody's just moved on and forgotten that we're in that moment of intense pain. Or like, I mean, we all had collective trauma during COVID. Like, I don't think anybody's really dealt with it yet. And so like, eventually I think in 10 years we're going to wake up and it's going to hit us. Like a million people died from this and we didn't collectively grieve this as a nation. Or like, a lot of us are dealing with long COVID symptoms and like we haven't collectively dealt with how our world needs to shift as a result of we're all tired now (laughs) a lot easier. Yeah. And and so yeah. the healing process that can occur, I love what you, there's practicals to help it. There's people who need to know what they don't know in order to be able to aid it. But I think there's this third component of sometimes we just have to sit with each other in it and say, yeah. I get it. I see you. I don't have the words to fix it, but I'm going to be here with you in that moment.
1: Yeah. And I think in between those moments of crisis, and this is, this is what I've learned through my life of crisis. My life goes from one crisis to another. It's a crisis slowly pad around here, but <laughs> what I've learned just is <laughs> Yeah. In the middle, when everything's good, when everything's calm, I think it's so easy and understandable to want to soak those moments in and then the next crisis happens and so like life is happening life is happening to you so in those moments we need to take little bits of time to learn what skills do we need to cope with the next crisis like mm. in this crisis the past what was i lacking mm-hmm. you know was i lacking compassion was i lacking patience mm. don't pray for me but try to figure out how you can yeah. be more patient do not ask god to give you patience that's like my number one advice in life or humility um, or humility, right? Exactly. But like, what was I lacking in this? What could I have done to make this better? And I think a lot of times we can, we can name what someone else could have done to make it better. And we, and we focus on that. Like, I, I see this in every corner of life where it's so much easier to point out what my husband could have done better when the generator went down or what my son could have done better when the light bill wasn't paid, or what or like how his attitude could have been better, or like what could Ted Cruz have done better when snow apocalypse happened. Mm-hmm. Like there's all these ways that we can pinpoint what everyone else could do better. And I think that the key to life is pointing out what I could have yeah. done better. Almost what can a, I do.
0: Like our wounds can be a teacher. They can they can yes. be the thing that drag us or they can be the thing that we confront. And we find new realities to move to the next. I I don't even know how I want to say this, but it's almost as if like our wounds and our grief and our hurt when approached properly can end up teaching us so that the next time it happens, which it certainly will, we approach it better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Like what, what do I lack and how can I be more fully present as myself, because mm-hmm. that's another thing that I think we miss in so much of the healing conversation is that we're never going to be fully healed on this mm-hmm. side of heaven, because that is what holiness is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> holiness is a process of becoming whole. And in that process is healing from these things, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and what can we do for one another. For instance, you know, again, kind of going back to the Ewaldi shooting, and I'm and I'm not in any way, shape, or form not holding the shooter accountable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in reading the report of his childhood, mm-hmm. it's like there are so many places mm-hmm. that lacked love, yep. kindness, deep and deep, wounds. deep way, exactly. And no real help or support. For those things right and so like what can we do to learn from that without mm-hmm. again giving them a pass it's not an excuse that's not a reason plenty of people go through those things and don't do horrific things right but what can we do to the kids around us or the people around us who we see are lacking something and if you don't if you don't have what it takes to help them then who do you know that could help them mm-hmm. you know for instance if i came across someone who was like you know i am you know trying to work and it's really difficult and i have two small children and blah 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 like you know I, as a catholic i'm not in that position i've never been in a position of being a catholic working mother but I would be like, you know, I know Katie Prejean, here's her podcast, here's mm-hmm, her mm-hmm. writing. You know, if someone comes to me and they're a black Catholic and they're like, I'm really struggling with, mm-hmm. you know, racism in the church, what do I do? I send them links to Gloria Previs's mm-hmm, writing, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. And so, so who do we know and and what do we know and what resources do we know of that mm-hmm. we can help someone else with because it doesn't always have to be us we don't always have to have the answer to everything Right. right. yeah <laughs> and and we also are not responsible for what they do with that information yeah
0: to give yeah. what you have I think that's beautiful and it's, a, it's yeah. that's easy it's like I mean it's hard in reality but like give what you have do you have ten dollars you can give that ten dollars yeah it's not uh, the thousand but it helps get the person a little closer to the thing that they need Do you have an hour of your time to just sit and listen to your friend? Give them that hour. Leticia, we could keep going uh, because we (laughs) are friends and we love to chat with each other. Um, But where can
1: folks follow you and where can they pre-order your new book? So I really want people, and I know this goes against what everyone else says, and that's fine because I have a totally different goal. But I really would love people to buy my book from Amazon because it puts it in the eyeballs of people who won't necessarily go Mm -hmm. to, you know Ave's website or or other Catholic resources. So I really want with the cover and the name of my book it pops, and I really want to put it in the hands of people who normally wouldn't buy a Catholic yeah. book. Yeah, we'll put the link so, yes, in it, our show notes. Yeah, Amazon. Yeah, and so <laughs> it obviously costs me to advertise that, but that's what I want. I want to see what God can do mm. because Beautiful. He does great things, and I love watching it all happen. And then you can follow me at uh, my website is LetitiaOAdams.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I have a Twitter, but I'm never on there because it's accessible. But (laughs) it is, (laughs) I I would not I
0: would I would recommend avoiding it as best you can.
1: We'll put all the (laughs) links down
0: in the show notes for sure. Letitia, it's always a joy to get to visit with you.
1: I know. It's so great talking to you. (laughs) Thanks
0: so much. We'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk soon. One of the things I always really appreciate about Letitia is her honesty. This this journey of healing from the grief, it's really not even from the grief, but, but learning to live with the grief, learning to walk with that heavy weight, learning to stand in the wave as it crashes. It's really quite beautiful to watch how she shares about that. Letitia has a, a brand new book. We've got a link for it down in the show notes. You should definitely grab a copy. She tells that story and a whole lot more about the Blessed Mother and her journey with Mary through her healing as well as processing everything that has happened in her life. The link for that book is down in the show notes. If you like this conversation, then you're certainly going to like our other episode this week with Jenny Hubbard, also about grief. And you'll probably like all of the conversations we've had so far this season. You can find it all over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. Don't miss anything. Sign up for all of our weekly emails that tell you what we're talking about and who we are visiting with and also sign up for our advent series which will be starting obviously at the end of november beginning of december we'll be walking through sister miriam james heidland's book behold and of course we'll have an accompanying podcast series go ahead and grab your copy of that book now also a link you guessed it down in the show notes we're always so grateful to have you listen, to have you join us in our conversations, especially this season on healing. We've got a whole lot more coming, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything. Share it with your friends, share it with your family. We're so glad that you were with us for this conversation with Letitia Adams today.
1: This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.